So Akshi, what's your what's your favorite city that you've been to? Very fun question, Ren. I recently just traveled to the northeast of America. Mm-hmm. And um, I can say without a doubt that I really did enjoy New York City. I don't know if that's cliche to say, but coming from Texas, fantastic. Yeah. Love it there. Bit of a culture shock, bit crowded, bit. Uh... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you go from the big roads of Texas to just like these tiny, narrow pathways in New York City. And I guess it's because in New York City, everyone uses a subway. Like using right. a car in New York City is insane. Whereas in Texas, without a car, you're not getting anywhere. Absolutely not. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, same thing in, in Europe and basically yeah. anywhere where like big highway systems aren't common. You've got mm-hmm. smaller roads. It's almost like the culture and environment and space and place of a city makes it look the way it does. Almost like the architecture is based off of what they do. <laughs> that might be the case. And that's exactly what we'll be diving into today on The Unfinished Mind. Hello, welcome to our podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Ren, and I'm the second one, Akshi. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and today, we're going to be talking a bit, as we said, sort of alluded to, about uh-huh. architecture, world building, how culture and and design sort of mix to make a city or a space or something that it that people live in look the way it does. Beautiful. Put your art hats on. Yeah, get your art hats, your thinking caps, your your sort of uh, curiosity regarding the building you may be standing sitting or looking at sitting i was meant to say at at the end of those things it yeah. almost worked it works out don't worry about it there's a building by you think about that building picture that yeah. building whatever it may be and <laughs> let's talk about it yep so naturally architecture is a part of the human experience and has been ever since we figured out how to put shelter over our heads and you know propagate the race. It was like a big deal back in the day, I imagine. Um, We won't go all the way back there. We'll just go back to more recent history. Um, Let's talk about some Greek and Roman architecture in the Americas. We're quite familiar with this as most of our governmental buildings still look like Greek and Roman buildings used to back in the day. So very Western, (laughs) very Western. The White House. The White House. Yes, yes. Very, uh, Greco-Roman indeed. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So Hellenistic culture and architecture centralizes around human interaction and worship. Stoas were covered open air walkways that allowed for the ease of communication in central marketplaces, which are called agoras, which, you know, stems from the agoraphobia, just big open spaces where people would gather. Temples uh, were built elevated relative to the landscape and were surrounded with pillars that presented them as grand and elegant. Temples were central to public life with offerings and celebrations taking place in honor of local deities. These temples are sort of what like the Washington, uh, the monuments in Washington, not necessarily the Washington Monument, because obviously that one's just sort of like an obelisk. But the Lincoln Memorial, for example, is very temple-esque. The Parthenon in Athens, which is another very temple-like structure. Uh, They were also very obsessed with symmetry, which is maybe a topic for another day, but it's fun to think about. Um, Some other little quirks of Greco-Roman history and culture uh, were their open theaters, their sort of amphitheaters, 
which were used as meeting places uh, and performance stages. So they'd use them for like as the town, the town hall, basically, and also a place where people would generate performances. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting conversations. <laughs> Interesting conversations. Yes. These open theaters were built into the side of hills in a circular orientation, and the orchestra was located in front of the stage. These are literally everywhere today. Like you could probably yeah. think of any public park and you're like, oh yeah, we've got one of those weird looking stone bench amphitheater things with no roof. The circle in the middle. Circle in the middle. And they're all mm. over. And I yeah. suppose I should say all over the West. <laughs> I have no idea if they're present in other other countries um, quite as much. My school had like a very similar structure for its amphitheater, which is all like right. in India. So I feel like it's not a difficult concept to think <laughs> of. There were probably amphitheaters in several different architectural environments. Um, that Maybe we, this was just common sense, you know, we're just like... Probably. Mm, we're yeah. attributing it to the Greeks and Romans as we attribute many things that they don't actually deserve credit for. So <laughs> They were the uh, smart ones. They, they, uh, no. <laughs> they Did you were. heard about Socrates? <laughs> Listen, Socrates was a thief and a liar. <laughs> and a dirty, dirty cheat of the world. Dirty cheat who had too much time on his hands and too many resources oh, to write down his <laughs> thoughts. Anyways, um, anyway. more on how the Greeks and Romans <laughs> stole everything later in another episode of The Impetish Mind, perhaps. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, so something that is also attributed to this culture, though, is the is gymnasiums, which were important cultural centers. Symposiums were held here, which consisted of sports, bathing, drinking, music and philosophy. So Socrates got it on Socrates, with his boys boy. at the gym. He was right there. <laughs> I think Socrates had one of those gallon jugs he carried around everywhere with him. Oh, 100%. Like with the strap and everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he oh, was yeah. like. Uh, always answer questions with questions or whatever. I don't remember what Socrates <laughs> said. <laughs> what? I think it was so on set. Yeah, it was. Maybe we'll do a Socrates episode. We Socrates. should. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Is he worth it? I don't know. We should try. <laughs> <laughs> so another common site in Greek and Roman history uh, were sculptures. And, you know, sculptures are not actually something native to all cultures and uh, places. It's sort of a case-by-case -case situation. Um, but sculptures of humans and gods were hyper-realistic in Greek and Roman uh, architecture and represented the stories of Greek and Roman heroes. So the three branches of Greek culture that these sort of statues and gymnasium theaters would be inspired by were the branches of the Dorian, Ionic, and Corinthian cultures. Uh, there were small differences between the designs of each of these, um, each of these architectural styles. Uh, their, their pillars would be different in slightly, slightly different ways. They'd have like different ridges, different patterns, different ways that the tops would be shaped. You know, like you don't really realize a column is that different until you look at it very closely. Um, mm -hmm. But if you look very closely, you will find differences in the Dorian, Ionic, and Corinthian styles of column making um the pillars the pillars the columns i'm referring to are also called orders um which i don't i couldn't tell you i'm no architect uh but that orders there you go and these That's orders it does it does um they distinguish between different ancient greek cultures as did differences in music 
speech and style. So basically, you can tell what kind of branch of Greek culture something is from by looking at its building. That is incredibly cool. I think you also mentioned somewhere in there that the Greek and Romans were obsessed with symmetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm taking you across the world right now. In China, it was the exact same. Um, that great emphasis on articulation and bilateral symmetry. Um, the entire house should be symmetrical on both sides. Additions conducted on one wing must also be conducted on the other side. Gardens, however, were not symmetrical. They were intended to let one feel close to nature, so they were structured very flexibly to allow natural harmony, um, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I really like that, um, yeah. Yeah. The gardens had two distinct features. The first were the hints, hailstones, which represented the pursuit of immortality. And the second was water, which was em- which represented emptiness of existence. And together they represented the yin and yang, or static and dynamic beauty, which need each, uh, which need each other to achieve balance. Wow, that's so cool. I will never look at water the same. Yeah, I've never thought of the the actual concept of like the stones you see in like people's backyard ponds probably came from this idea of balancing yin and yang. Yeah, that is pretty cool. cool. And there's another common thing um, that I'm sure a lot of you have heard of. It's called feng shui, which in the Webster's Dictionary is a Chinese geomantic practice in which a structure or site is chosen or configured so as to harmonize with the spiritual forces that inhabit it. This um, concept, feng shui, is derived from a Taoist belief. Um, bagua is another concept within feng shui, which translates into eight areas. The bagua each have distinct aesthetic features that improve different aspects of your life. For example, health is represented by brown and yellow squares, while family corresponds to green, blue, and teal columns. Huh. That's interesting because I think a lot of times in like American culture, people who practice or I should say maybe appropriate ideas from Taoism and incorporate them into like modern um, wellness practices will say like, oh, you have to organize your home in a feng shui way to balance your chakras, which also (laughs) are color coded like that. And it's obviously like a misunderstanding of American culture, but or of of these other cultures by american culture mm-hmm. and it's just that's really funny to me that like there is some there's some truth to what they're saying yeah. you're just completely thinking about it wrong it's very cool how they the feng shui associates like a certain spiritual energy to the way that something is constructed um, definitely i think that's really cool yeah. yeah i like the idea that uh the physical and metaphysical should there be a thing or should you choose to believe in such a thing? Uh-huh. Harmonize like that. It's really cool. Very poetic. Yeah. Speaking of things that are very cool and well, I don't know about poetic, probably a little poetic. I don't know. Oh, yeah. um, Egyptologists, oh, yeah. if there's any <laughs> Egyptologists <laughs> out there who could tell me if Egypt the was poetry. into poetry much. Um, anyways, moral of the story, bad transition. We're going to be talking about Egypt and Egypt's sort of architectural flavor. So Egypt is probably best known by like youths who have just learned what Egypt is by its language or written language, hieroglyphics and pictorial carvings, um, the ancient sort of writing style, which is a unique element of Egyptian architecture and communication. These 
hieroglyphics and carvings would recount stories about wars, gods, and pharaohs of the past, along with many other things. Uh, the materials that were used to craft most architectural things in Egypt were locally sourced mud, brick, and limestone, as there's a scarcity of wood in this geographical region. Makes sense. Very dry, very desert. There's like just the Nile, which has like shrubs. Shout out, Egypt, doing great. Um, as for labor, they use levied workers. Uh, as part of each community's tribute to the kingdom, men were taken to the capital to serve as manual labor for the construction of monuments. This was non-consensual and often afforded very little compensation for their work. In other words, this was essentially slavery. And that's how you'll find it written in most uh, history books regarding ancient Egyptian construction. Notable forms of architecture, however, to move to maybe some of the wonderful feats that these people were forced to accomplish, but still we can we can look at with some awe to this day, um, included temples, tombs, and of course, the pyramids. Great mystery of the world. How did they build them? What 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 tools did they have? <laughs> did you say it was aliens? Everyone says it's aliens. <laughs> <laughs> it was almost certainly aliens. Yes. hundred <laughs> percent. Heard it here first, folks. It was aliens. Fact check me on that. <laughs> <laughs> no fact checking necessary. That's probably not true, but hey, we, we just don't know. You never know. You never know. These are, these are the great secrets that we don't have answers to. Anyways, the pyramids. So, of course, there's the great the Giza pyramid complex, which I feel is maybe the most well known. Uh, this represents the power of the theocratic state of ancient Egypt. Each pyramid was lasting legacy and a final resting place for the pharaoh it was dedicated to. So basically, the pharaohs each got their own pyramid. Um, these were extremely impressive in regards to precision and the mathematic calculations and proportions that were necessary to construct these, these pyramids. Cause they are, I mean, they're essentially perfect. They're essentially perfect structures. And it's like, how did they do this? Speaking of other myths regarding the pyramids, <laughs> it is actually thought that the pyramids are highly complex and have tunnels and passageways mm -hmm. in and out, making them like mazes that Scooby-Doo and his pals can get trapped in. But uh, the fact is that they were relatively, they are, I guess they're still there, obviously. Yeah. But <laughs> that would be, this is not despicable me. I sometimes <laughs> Pyramid is they're not still the there. They're still there, guys. They're still there. No worries. Uh, Vector has not stolen the pyramids. Hope everyone gets that reference. But doesn't he steal the moon? He steals the pyramid first oh. and like replaces it with an inflatable pyramid, the great pyramid, the main, like big great pyramid, the one in the middle. I, <laughs> I don't know. I think they all have different names. I, don't I know. have to like refresh my Despicable Me lore before I watch this next minion. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you got to catch up. You got to watch the first. Are there I two or three of them? But the fact of the matter is that it is actually relatively simple to navigate the pyramids. They're not these complex things. Not in the movies, baby. Not how they showed in the movies. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And most shafts lead directly to the tombs. So basically, they've got one door, pretty much, or a few doors, and they just go straight to where that pharaoh will be located. Um, and people really stop going in there because it's disrespectful <laughs> but anyways anyways more on that another time how yeah. the english all stole mummy ashes to eat them because they thought it would cure 
all their illnesses and stuff. We could do an episode about that actually. It's very serious? interesting. Oh yeah. It was a, it was a trend to eat mummies. That was a thing. Yeah. How did they access this? Access the mummies? The ashes of the mummies. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, like, you know, back in the day when the English were acting as grave robbers for oh, Egypt. Okay. I thought invading. it was like present day. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> this, was, this was back in like the, the early imperialist era. era okay. Of Egypt, okay. Of, not Egypt of England. <laughs> That's the secret to Queen Elizabeth's Yu-Gi-Oh. <laughs> Mummy Ashley. <laughs> no more, no more myths, no more lies, no more conspiracy theories so on this podcast. This is supposed to be sharing truth and science with the Let community. Let me just gaslight the community. <laughs> it's tempting, but there's the internet exists for a reason, Akshi. We are here to be arbiters of truth, not propagators of lies. But a fun fact to derail from that. While building the pyramids, workers dug some shafts extremely deep into the ground to test how deep in the Earth's crush, crust they could reach. Geology pioneers. So we've been talking a lot about how cultures and um, architecture match up with each other. And honestly, you cannot talk about cultures without talking about globalization. Because right now, every place is just like coming together and we're all holding hands and stuff, you know. Yeah. So. Everybody's <laughs> so let's talk about modern day globalization and its impact on our physical environment. Uh, globalization describes how the world has become more connected and interdependent through various social and economic means, like the internet. Uh, the 2015 Milan Expo brought this term into a more physical and visual meaning. The film Living in a Global Village revisits the Milan Expo as a global village and as a site designed to facilitate global connections and reflect the interconnectedness of cultures today. The 2015 Milan Expo was a world's fair that intended to unite cultures and minds across the world. The theme that year was on sustainability and countries built their spaces based on this theme within, with their own interpretations and significance of their culture and national goals. Over 140 countries participated in this expo. Organizers designed the space with tent-like canopies spread out in a manner inspired by Milan Roman, Milan's Roman city planning foundations. This layout was intended to remove any hierarchy between participating countries. That is actually really cool. That's so cool. I had no idea this happened. Me neither. I need to watch this movie. Yeah. And, <laughs> although this macroscopic environment of routes and public areas was in place, the countries themselves could design their own plot. The Brazil Pavilion featured an exhibit exhibition that was built on the idea of erasing borders and reflected the global theme of the 2015 Expo. This pavilion also featured an open metal structure for people to walk through and intended to physically display the meaning of a network as decentralized and flexible. Huh. The Mexico pavilion had sails wrapped around its structure and it, and it was based on corn, a food Mexico is widely known for. The Slovenia pavilion shows a geometric angled roof with a feel-like pattern to represent the country's diverse topography. Wow. Yeah, that is, I'm wondering like the different type of countries and what exactly they showed for the theme yeah. of globalization because there was like 140 countries in there. I'm definitely about to go on a deep, deep, dark research oh, yeah. dive about what all these pavilions look like because they sound really cool. Yeah. And the expo allowed each country to showcase what is meaningful to them through architecture, food, innovation and activities, while also sharing these with other people. 
So really, they've used architecture as another one of the many means of communication between cultures, which I think is just Cheska's. Absolutely beautiful. There is a beautiful sort of through line we can find here between how the history of architecture and culture, and obviously we only talked about a few of them here, but this is something that applies to every single, every single location in which humans have gathered throughout all of time in history. Like it's a big deal how, how culture, how the people in a place choose to form homes and form communities and build spaces it's it's super important and that history has been used in world building for virtually all of the art and fiction and literature and movies and entertainment that we enjoy daily so these it's amazing yeah and uh, you know concept art and writing pretty much everything that is some sort of abstraction of the human experience requires world building. And I think it's pretty neat. So world building to define that term establishes the storytelling and world design for a given work, such as in novels, films, video games, and more. The process involves deciding what rules are followed, what languages are spoken, cultural norms are practiced, and more in the world that is being created. Like what the buildings look like, what the roads are like, how people get from place to place. Um, and more, it's endless. It's trying to simulate what our societies have accomplished through years of being built, right? It's, it's incredible. It takes entire teams to work on this together and create a world that makes sense in its space. Oftentimes, existing work, history, and our present day are used by these teams and referenced as inspiration to build entirely new worlds. Uh, I think this is—I think this is one of the biggest talents that the human species has—is yeah. to like craft their own little new world based on things they know about this world. It's just really, like the first thing that pops in my mind when we talk about this for some reason is Sims. <laughs> yeah. Like in yeah. the Sims. Like the cult imagine the cult of <laughs> Sims, please. <laughs> it's I mean, it's like it's like the utopiafied version of of like American and Western society, but it's it's sure, it's yeah. super cool that yeah. they accomplish that, right? Like it, it makes total sense in their sim, sim world. world. Yeah. <laughs> in that. And many works feature architectural styles of the past, as well as include the practices performed in these spaces and how characters and the physical environment interact. For example, architecture in the Legend of Zelda games are inspired by medieval Europe. Neat. That makes a lot of sense. It does. It does. Yeah. I was like, I've seen this somewhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you talked a great deal about world building and how it takes like a whole team and mm-hmm. so much work and effort into actually building um, something so fantastic, something that's just like a little, little part of what this, what generations have been doing in real life. Right. And there's a bunch of approaches to actually like get into world building. Um, And to just talk about some, we have a top-down versus a bottom-up approach. The top-down approach is initially defining or implementing broad characteristics to a society and then delving down into the nuances. So starting all the way from the top, the big picture, we go right down to the nitty-gritty detail. That's the top-down approach. (laughs) And there's two types. There's broad to specific, which is... That's just 
categorizing. Yeah. Um, the second approach, which is a bottom-up approach, uh, is piecing together using these nuances and in- to create cultural details to form a collective world. So we start with the small Lego pieces and we make this really big structure. Most ancient human civilizations actually follow a top-down approach. So we're talking about going from broad to specific. First, people aggregate in a common setting or environment next to a river, for example. That is how a lot of civilizations were born, right? There's next so to many. It's oh, like yeah. water is, I mean, obviously water <laughs> is super important, but like it's, 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 it's like, crazy. I love mapping it. Oh, yeah. Um, and then these people, once they aggregate in by the riverbed, they divide social societal role among members of the group. So they say, you are going to go get the food and you are going to protect us, I guess. You know, sure, sure. So whatever they did, yeah, whatever, they <laughs> whatever did. needed doing. <laughs> um, these cultural roles then necessitate what types of buildings are acquired, which is incredible when you think about it. For example, leaders of the group may need buildings that allow them to meet and discuss important matters. Obviously, like we have the, <laughs> the Supreme Court and all these Supreme Court's a building, right? It That's can't it. be. Yeah. I guess the SCOTUS <laughs> building. Sure, sure. Yes. The, the actual and court. The actual court. The courtroom of the Supreme the Court. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We discuss important matters, important buildings. Or coffee shops, <laughs> which also discuss sometimes important matters. I mean, back in the day, they were hot spots of, of you know, political discourse. We have an episode about it. So everyone go back and listen to our coffee shops episode if you haven't. You don't understand all of those things to understand yeah. these things. There you go. <laughs> and secondly, you had blacksmiths and artisans that may need that needed specific buildings that could accommodate their products that they were making. Um, you need yeah. very specific tools to make them, very specific, like whatever uh, that they work with to make these tools. And I think I think that still applies today. Like you have specific buildings for all these engineers and all of these doctors, like the hospital, you know? Yeah. Or a, a like repair garage for vehicles. Yeah. Like we, we need certain types of buildings for certain things to be done. Everyone's just so niche and everyone requires their own things. It, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, the number resources of their environment also impact the types of architecture you might see. For example, there might be different kinds of stone, cement, or metal that would attribute to the way that they choose to build around that area. Um, yeah. Makes sense. I mean, you know, you got to build with what you have. Resources. It's always be been that way. Always been that way. Always been that way. But in contrast to the very real things that Akshay has been speaking about, most fictional world building is actually approached from the bottom up. So oftentimes a fiction writer or someone crafting a a non-realistic world will start off with specific and intricate characters, settings and storylines and perhaps themes that they want to accomplish. And then around that, build the structure that can encase those characters, settings, storylines and themes. The specific niches and settings may have distinct types of physical and fictional architecture and must aggregate to form the entire fictional world. So one example, don't love talking about this subject lately because it gives clout to a turf and I don't like giving clout to turfs. That is fair. But one example would be the fictional world of Harry Potter. 
I only use this because it's a pretty common one. Most people know how the fictional world of Harry Potter works, which is crazy. I don't know why it's so popular. I, I, I'm completely lying because it used to be my favorite thing. It's like my favorite thing as a child. But anyways, um, then I grew up. Muggles have ordinary modern human architecture and culture. It's just like our world. We are the muggle world, essentially. We are muggles. Yes. Well, you know, it's a lifestyle choice. <laughs> Depends how you choose to categorize yourself. Right? You could be a wizard. You just chose not to. Exactly. Exactly. Just like ascribe to the label you prefer. Oh, my but God. People of the wizarding world in Harry Potter had a very unique set of cultural norms and architecture that were very different and yet also quite parallel to our world. But of course, you know, they have different rules because they can do like magic and stuff following. They, they followed medieval Gothic trends inspired by the study of alchemy at the time. So building examples like Gringotts and Hogwarts would represent some like old medieval Gothic trends in England during the time when like, old school alchemy and uh, like romantic Gothic architecture was super popular. Uh, So you get like these grandiose castles and very, very European style, like, Ooh, that building looks haunted type stuff. Um, So of course, together, all of these distinct settings um, create this, very well-built fictional world of the Harry Potter series, which I even I can't deny all the problems I may have with the author is a beautiful world. It's built really well. And, you know, that's something we can say for like most old school authors who like did horrible things or were terribly racist and like wrote, good. Oh, yeah. you know, it's just kind of how it is. But, um, but I mean, yeah, you were just talking to me about how you were rereading Percy Jackson. I mean, this could apply to that as well, right? You no, know? I think Rick Riordan is actually pretty wholesome. Oh, <laughs> he no, hasn't no, done a lot of wrong. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely the world building. No, I'm absolutely not building. coming for him. I love the man. Oh my god! <laughs> like, let's not ruin any more childhoods. <laughs> let's so let sorry. him be. A good person, fingers <laughs> crossed. Rick Riordan, if you're out there, I love you, sir. Thank you for the good book. So I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. But yeah, he he's also a very good world builder. But you know, to to, to step away from like authors and stuff, uh, there we as people are world building all the time, like just regular old folks. Like think of D and D, Dungeons and Dragons. That that entire Ooh, yeah. game is, hey, what if we made up a fictional world together and played in it? Wouldn't that be fun? And it is. It's like something that I don't know. Humans are inclined to do naturally and extremely good at. You know, it's one of the things that I think sets our species apart. Because I don't know of any animals that could world build, but you know, I haven't hey, asked around. Feel like little ants making their ant hills. Uh, yeah there you go that's that's their hives like you know well that's at least architecture but i don't know if they like like they're definitely builders talented builders and architects and they have cultures for sure but i don't know if they have the ability to make new ones that are never going to be tangible you know what i'm saying that's correct yeah we have so many different types they kind of with the one don't they yeah they have like physical building of places and spaces and that's super cool but like we can we can invent things with our minds that will never exist but exist enough and we can do it really well i think the it's brain. <laughs> the human the human race is neat sometimes yeah sometimes 
on this very screen. thin ice. <laughs> Sometimes. So as Ren was saying, the next time you're sitting in a building and you're looking at another building, just think about it. Think, think about, about it. all of the things that went into that and all the things that will go into more. Absolutely. And wherever you may be, uh, thank you for listening to this episode of The Unfinished Mind. Uh, in whatever building you may be sitting in, I hope it was informative and delightful. And I hope you do some more investigating of anything that piqued your curiosity today. I believe we will see you soon, about two weeks time or so, to talk about another fascinating topic that will next time certainly <laughs> keep you guessing. So in the meantime, I've been Ren. I'm Akshay. And we'll see you later. The Unfinished Mind is brought to you by the Polymathic Scholars. Our script writers this week were Ariane Austria, Neha Yawalkar, and Darsan Selva Kumar. Sound design by Jensen Richardson and Amaris Mendoza. Produced by Liz Kinnerk and Bill Tang. Our publicist is Claire Nevins. Hosted by Ren Smith and Akshi Pant. Thanks for listening. And remember to follow your curiosity.